0: All right, today we continue on in our summer sermon series titled Centered on the Psalms. And today we look at Psalm 16. It's in your pew Bibles on page 453. Or uh, you can just look in your bulletin. It is there as well. Let me ask you, are you a satisfied person? Perhaps uh, your answer is, well, It depends. Are you asking on Monday or Friday? Are you talking about most days or always? Psalm 16 helps us to see where our satisfaction is to be found. Satisfaction that is abundant, ever-present, no matter our circumstances. Do you long for that? Then let us read and ponder the words of Psalm 16. A victim of David... For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, We must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this most excellent word to us this morning. Um, Help us to see that you are a happy God (laughs) who delights in his creation. and, And through Jesus Christ, you delight in your people. And you share that joy with us. And that joy is most satisfying. Help us to see that this morning, implanted in our hearts, that it just can't be in our heads. We pray that your spirit would do this work in us. Amen. Infomercials are the best, aren't they? You know, they, uh, they present you with some crazy new invention. They talk to you in such a way that you wonder, how in the world could I ever have lived without that self-shrinking hose or that spray-on gutter sealant or that sham-wow-terrific towel? The products look cool, but you're still kind of sitting on the fence. So at the end of the commercials, they do what? They always provide you with a satisfaction guarantee. If you're not completely satisfied, just return it. No questions asked. Of course, it costs more for the return shipping than for the product itself. Infomercials tempt you with something you cannot live without and promise satisfaction guaranteed. You know, there's something true about human nature. Pretty much everything we do involves a desire for satisfaction. As kids, we try new sports because they look fun and we we think we'll find satisfaction in them. And sadly, teenagers begin using drugs because they promise a refuge from the difficulties or trials of life. And they think they can find satisfaction there. As adults, we long for the perfect spouse But then when satisfaction isn't guaranteed, marriages end up collecting dust in the garage or worse yet, they get returned. Then later in life, the elderly look back on all the things that used to be satisfying one's youth, young kids in the home, earning potential, health, and they see how they've all seemed to have evaporated. Like my father used to say sarcastically, if these are the golden years, I can't wait for the platinum. It's true. Satisfaction in life is so fleeting. But thankfully, we have Psalm 16. In Psalm 16, King David models for us the mindset of someone who finds abundant, ever-present satisfaction in God. Now perhaps you're thinking, well, of course David is satisfied. He was the king of all, Jerusalem, of, of all Israel. Why wouldn't he be satisfied? Actually, David's life was like ours in many respects, as Martin Lloyd-Jones points out. This is a psalm of David, and David was a man with the same passions as ourselves. He had many troubles. He had to face many problems. He brought many of them upon himself, as we do, Right, But many came in spite of him, simply the result of the world in which he lived and because there were other sinners like himself around him. So I think we can learn a lot from David about true satisfaction. David shows us that satisfaction is possible even when the cards are stacked against you. In spite of numerous setbacks and disappointments in his life, recurring depression and political defeats, David was a profoundly satisfied man. Satisfied, that is, in God. God was a source of David's satisfaction, and it is evident in every verse in this psalm. Here we see that God alone can truly satisfy us in life and in death. That's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to move verse by verse and dig out some important details so that satisfaction may flow into our lives as well. The first detail, and there's a number of them, so if you're taking notes, get some room. I know we didn't leave a whole lot of room on your bulletin for taking notes. Sorry about that. But the first point that we see here is David's petition. It's in the first half of verse 1, where David cries out asking, Preserve me, O God. Preserve him from what? We don't know David's circumstances. It easily could have been one one of the many occasions in which David was fleeing for his life from Saul the king. Or it could have been when his own son Absalom was seeking to kill him. We don't know the circumstances, but that's okay. What we do need to be aware of is to whom he cried out. David cries out to God. Next, we see David's declaration Along with the petition comes his declaration. And there's a link between the two. You see that? Where we read, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. He's saying, I declare that you are my refuge, therefore preserve me, God. Are you familiar with the Old Testament term cities of refuge? Upon entering into the promised land, God instructed the people to set aside six cities scattered throughout the land to call them cities of refuge. The cities were designated as safe places for someone who accidentally killed somebody. They could flee there and not be killed by another. Why? Because human nature is that people want revenge. (laughs) So God created these cities to provide safe haven and protection. David recognizes that our God is a city of refuge. That's what he's saying. As Sam Storms writes, he says, He is our safe, soul-satisfying haven of rest. Like a frightened child running to her father, hiding from danger behind the imposing presence of one committed to protect her, David sought safety in God. David declares that because God is his refuge, he knows that he can call upon him to preserve him. But that's not all David declares. There's two more things. The next thing David declares, he declares that God is his sovereign Lord. Look at verse 2. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. Remember last week we looked at Lord when Lord is in all caps, L O R D? That's really God's name, Yahweh in the original Hebrew. So, and, and then the word Lord is Adonai, which means. The second occurrence of Lord is Adonai, which which means ruler or sovereign or king. David is saying, "I say to Yahweh, you are my sovereign Lord." Now, when we say God is sovereign, we are acknowledging that everything, everything is in His hands, and not more than that, that God rules over all. He is sovereign. Nothing happens by accident. Not that you're a puppet on a string, but that everything on earth works out according to God's perfect will in heaven. Are you comfortable with God being sovereign over all the events of your life, the good and the bad? Or when hardships come, do you begin bargaining with God? I've been a good Christian. I tithe. I pray. I do my devotional. So why? Why? You know, David, David tithed, David prayed. He even wrote some of our devotionals, didn't he? But when he found himself surrounded by turmoil, he found satisfaction that God is sovereign over all. So David declares that God is his refuge, that God is his sovereign Lord. And then the third declaration comes in the second half of verse two. There we read what? This is amazing. David declares, I have no good apart from you. Pause for a moment. Just reflect on that. He says, I have no good apart from you. It's easy, isn't it, to be happy, to be satisfied when you have God and things are going well? But what happens when when all is going wrong and all you have is God? God. Do you have the spiritual wisdom? Do you have the spiritual resources to be satisfied? Sam Storms puts it this way. The measure of our satisfaction is the degree to which we can both trust and rejoice when all we have left is God. See, the psalmist is not denying that other things are good, are satisfying, or or capable of evoking pleasure in our lives. Christianity is not about rejecting any and all earthly good things. It doesn't say reject enjoying your career and only enjoy God. It does not say that. Christianity does not welcome you to that. No, our earthly delights in marriage and family and relationships and work and in recreation are to be embraced. But only when acknowledged and enjoyed as gifts of God, without whom all else is ultimately meaningless. See, David knew what we must know, that we have no good apart from God David could be shivering in a cold cave, hiding out from King Saul, with no possessions in his hands, nothing to possess but Yahweh his Lord. And guess what? David has enough. God is David's supreme treasure. How about you? Do you declare that God is your refuge in good times and in bad? Do you declare that God is your sovereign Lord? in good times and in bad? Do you declare that you have no good apart from God in good times and in bad? If all the good in your life was stripped away, all health and home and family and possessions, all is gone, would you be able to say, Lord, all that I need I have in you. You are goodness to me. Next we see David's delight in verse 3. Look at that, he says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in, in whom is all my delight. Now, don't get hung up on this word saint. Saint is, uh, means to be set apart by God as holy unto him. So all Christians are saints, right? It's not just the really good ones, right? We're all saints, all set apart by God unto him. Now, here's what David is doing. He's looking around the land and he's seeing um, those who belong to God and, and he calls them the excellent ones. See, he sees God at work in them and through them and it causes delight in David. You know, one of my joys of being a pastor is is the same thing, getting the delight in the excellent ones, the saints here at Grace Church. this past week, I had a phone call from someone. This person spent the last two years um, visiting a nursing home, this old man in a nursing home, and this past week she called me up saying it looks like he is dying, and in fact, he died on Friday. This person called because here she wanted advice on on how this man could hear the gospel one more last time before passing from this life into the next. That brought joy to my heart. I hung up and I thought of this passage. Why? Because I've been studying it all week. But, you know, here this person is just one of the many saints, the excellent ones in the land here at Grace Church, um, causing great delight in our community. Let me ask you, do you delight in the lives of other Christians? Truly delight in them? Do you rejoice that you are not alone? And that one of the ways God has preserved you is by placing you with his covenant people. We see David's dedication in verse 4. David expresses his dedication by describing what he will not do. Look at verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names, that's the name of the gods, on my lips. You know, there was much ungodliness during, in the land during David's reign. The gods of all the other nations that were supposed to be purged from the land lingered around. One of the big gods was the god of the Canaanites, Baal. Baal was the god of fertility and large harvests. David saw how his fellow Israelites ran after other gods like the Baals, believing the gods would deliver them satisfaction through a, a bountiful harvest. Now, how did David respond? It's really important to see what, how he responds. You know, He doesn't respond in self-righteousness. He doesn't condemn them. Something we should never do as Christians is look down on others in disgust as if we do not have sins in our own lives. Now, how does David respond? Does he see their sins and mock them? David does see their sins, but mostly he sees what? He sees their sorrows. He has compassion and empathy. He sees their sorrows. And how they multiply when they chase after other gods. I guess the eagles were right. That's a band from the 70s, you younger folks. When they sang, every form of refuge has its price. And so David dedicates himself to not running after other gods. He will not take part in these blood sacrifices. He will not take their names uh, upon his lips. This psalm invites us to do the same, to see how our sorrows are only multiplied when we chase after other God's substitutes. And so we must dedicate our lives to running after God alone and calling upon His name only. Next, we see David's contentment. We see that in verses 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup, you hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, here is where um, Bible knowledge is helpful and also necessary. David, once again, is, returning to the, is is pointing back to the time when God's people entered into the promised land and, and God divided up the land, set boundary lines for each of the tribes to have their own portion as an inheritance. But And then they would cast lots to see who got what. Now, if you remember, though, there was one of the tribes that didn't have their own uh, portion of land. That was the the Levites. They were the priests. Instead of having their own territory in the promised land, they were to live among the people, among all the other tribes, and serve in the temple. But God did not neglect them. He gave them something even far greater than land. And we read of it in Numbers chapter 18. Listen. And the Lord said to Aaron, he was the head of the Levites, you shall have no inheritance in their land. Oh, man, you sure? Okay, all right. Neither shall you have any portion among them. Dang, all right. But then check this out. God says, I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. God pledged himself as their inheritance. And so, with this in mind, here's what David is, is saying to God. He's saying, You, O oh God, are the portion that is allotted to me. You, O oh God, are my inheritance. You, O oh God, are the only land that I need. Are these not words of a profoundly contented man? Next, we see David's counselor. In verse 7, David says, That he blesses Yahweh, who gives him counsel. Uh, How does God, how does Yahweh counsel his people? Does he whisper in our ears in the middle of the night? No, he gives us his written word, and of course, his spirit to understand it. Now, this is no minor detail, right? Think about this. One of the ways that God provides his people refuge is through his written word. The more you live according to the wisdom of Scripture, the more you find that you are protected by God and the more of his refuge in your life you experience. You're not having sorrow upon sorrow heaped upon your life because you're not chasing after other gods. David knows this. And and so he delights in the counsel of the Lord. Do you delight in the counsel of the Lord? When the word of God says something that challenges you, do you lay it aside or do you allow it to change you? Now, please take notice of the outcome in the second half of verse 7. David says, in the night also my heart instructs me. I don't know about you, some night it's just hard to sleep, right? Okay. Um, but David here isn't like suggesting taking an Ambien, all right? He's, he's suggesting something different. What's going on? Well, have you ever been in the midst of a trial or a really difficult period in your life? You sought the Lord. You sought his scriptures. uh, You sat under godly counsel of other Christians. And at night you come and you meditate and you reflect upon all that's been going on. You're awake, but you're not restless. Light bulbs are going off as you're thinking about scripture and about the counsel you've received. And you're thinking more and more about in, in this very day what it looks like to walk faithfully as a follower of Christ in the circumstances of your life. And is it not true that in those moments do you not experience kind of a combination between repentance um, commingled with like a, a heightened devotion to God? It's not just me, right? It, that's what happens. And that's what's going on. That's what David is saying at night. I'm not restless. I'm, I'm chewing on your word and your counsel. And my, my own heart is speaking to me and transforming me. And this makes me excited. This is what allows me to sleep and to rest. David blesses God, his counselor. Next, we see David's stability, verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. When you're faced with trials in life that make you want to curl up into a ball, isn't it true that when you recount in your head who God is for you, does not confidence grow? When we remind ourselves that God is our refuge, that he is our sovereign Lord, that that his ways are delightful, that there are no earthly gods to run after that can help, that the boundary lines really have fallen in pleasant places, because God Himself is our portion in our cup, and that God has loved us by giving us the counsel of His Word. When we, rec- when we recall all that God is for His saints, does it not produce in us confidence? I shall not be shaken, we say. David says, I have set. I have set Yahweh always before me. What is David saying there? He's saying he's saying that he is determined to live out his life consciously in the presence of God. Always. Just as you must set your alarm clock to go off in the morning or your iPhone, wherever you have, so too you must actively determine to set the Lord always before you. This is our work, it it is our proper response to, to God's grace towards us. But we become busy, don't we? We have given the reins of our lives over to the tyranny of the urgent, we fill our schedules with lots of fluff. We think things are going pretty well, and we don't need to set the Lord before us. And we think, after all, well, when calamity does strike, well, we'll just binge on the Lord and make up for lost time. My friends, I have found that unless that, if you wait until the crisis hits to set the Lord before you, it could be too late. Because you might not like what's going on in your life, you may run from God to other gods. So we must set the Lord always before us. Now add to this, many Christians sit on their hands waiting for God to act. We're waiting for revival or we're waiting for some personal revelation. And and in the meantime, we tend to do nothing. Martin Lloyd-Jones refutes this Christian passivity when he writes... Listen, he says, Christian biography, that's stories of Christians in the past, proves abundantly that the people who have the most gracious and the most frequent visitations from God have been those who have sought him most diligently. Or as Hebrews 11 says, God rewards those who seek him. And next is David's song. In the first half of verse 9, David gushes with joy that turns to song. Look, he says, Therefore my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices. Have you ever found yourself doing this? You're singing in a worship service, and because Josh told us not to, it probably didn't happen today, but you're in a worship service singing songs with rich, rich words, full of great truths that should make your heart glad. But your mind is elsewhere and you're just kind of mouthing the words. Isn't that funny how that happens? You're like, you singing a whole stanza and you're like, I don't even remember what I sang, but I sang it, right? Okay, it's not just me. Maybe it is. All right. Have you ever done that? Well, this is not that, right? David says that his relationship with God brings him such a satisfaction that his heart is glad and his tongue follows suit. His whole being rejoices. Now, as I was thinking this through, I couldn't help but think of my, my dog at home. I got a chocolate lab named named Gus. When he's not sleeping, which seems to be most of the time he's sleeping, Gus lies on the floor just waiting for someone to pass by and, and give him some affection. How do I know? Because whenever I walk by, his whole being rejoices, <laughs> And how do I know that his whole being is rejoicing? Well, it's easy, uncontrollably. There's this tail that goes on the floor, thump, 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 thump. Actually, it goes like thump, 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 thump. His whole being is rejoicing, and it causes his tail to wag. My friends, God has not given us tails. He's given us tongues. The gladness only he gives causes our whole being to rejoice and our tongues to sing with joy. Now, as we get to the last two verses, David's delight uh, turns from the present into the future. God is not only just David's refuge in this broken, sin-filled world, but we see also that God will be his refuge and delight for all eternity. In verses 9 and 10, we see David's resurrection. That's point 11. Maybe you missed one, but that's a lot of them. We're moving fast though, aren't we? Um, in the last half of verse 9, David states, my flesh also dwells secure. That's his, his body. And then in verse 10, David confidently says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption or decay that's the body decaying in a, in a grave now what is he saying what does it mean well Sheol is a Hebrew word it can mean a number of different things it can mean death it can mean grave or it could mean that abode the realm where where people go and they die and to await judgment In saying that the Lord won't abandon him to Sheol to see corruption David is saying that he is confident that verse 1 will really come true in an amazing way. David is convinced that God will not just be his refuge in this life, but also in the life to come. David is rejoicing that his relationship with God won't be null and void when he dies. As Psalm 49 says, But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Now, it's with this confidence that David sings the marvelous words of verse 11. David sings of the endless bliss to come. That's the next point. David's endless bliss. Let me ask you truthfully do you think God is happy? I mean, like over the top, happy, 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 happy? Do you see God is happy? My friends, he is infinitely happy. He lacks for nothing. Unfortunately, I run into a lot of people, some of them are Christians, who confess, confess they're really not all that interested in heaven, you know? It's not really a place that they long to go. It's not even in the top 100 of their bucket list. I guess the impression that people have is that God is a boring, spoiled sport who, who likes the room quiet when he reads the paper. Please, for the good of your soul, cast that away from you. Throw it in the garbage. Understand this. God is supremely happy David says in his presence there is fullness of joy. You know, sometimes my kids fill up glasses of milk or water and they fill it so full that they can't even carry it without spilling it. This is the picture of God's joy. He has so much of it, such complete fullness, that it overflows into our lives. As David says, at your right hand are pleasures evermore. David sees what we must see, that apart from God, we have no good thing in this life and in the next. But with God, our portion, our cup, our inheritance, then we have everything. And how is this everything described? Fullness of joy. I don't even know what that looks like. You know, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm clueless to what fullness of joy looks like. All I know is, what, is, is by what it isn't, you know, what? It, what's missing, you know, sorrow, shame, guilt, you know, somebody cutting you off, uh, you know, a boring day. I don't know. It's like, uh, what is fullness, you know? I have a feeling that in heaven, the, the fullness of God's joy will overflow, that all of our sorrows on earth will just be... Um, um, Healed and satisfied and covered over. I don't know what fullness of joy looks like, but I, I know it, if it's there, I want it. Take time this week to meditate upon this. This fullness of joy and pleasure evermore are ever present with God. God is a trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit for all eternity. Before this universe was even created, there was pleasure and delight. Father, Son, Holy Spirit enjoying each other's perfection. What a great thing to have hope in. Now, how is it that David has confidence that God is his refuge in this life and in the next? And how are we to have confidence as well? You know, the temptation is to think that, well, David has God's blessing because well david was a good little saint he was a good little boy he did all these things right he was a man after god's own heart and he always set the lord before him let me ask you those of you who know david's story did he always set the lord before him no david once committed adultery and then murder in the same week david was a failure as a father Why is it then that David could relate to God with such confidence that God was his refuge in this life and in the next? Because ultimately, this psalm is not about David's faithfulness. You see, David's psalm was about David's savior. How so? Well, one day when David was alive, the prophet Nathan came to David and and God spoke to him and God gave uh, David this covenant promise you see it in Second Samuel 7. And we see David dying here. So <laughs> when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David knew that he would die and lie in the grave like his father's, but that God would set one of his descendants upon a throne. Now, when you read scriptures, who is the descendant of David? You can see it in Luke and in Matthew in the chronology of Christ. It is none other than Christ himself. God promised David that he would send another king, the perfect faithful king. And he would be the reason that David could have confidence that God is his refuge in this life and the next. We know this is Jesus as well, because if you recall in Acts chapter 2, when Peter gets up to preach that first sermon that converts 3,000 people, he quotes Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. At what point does he do that? Well, at the point in in the sermon where he was talking about how Jesus suffered and died... And went into the tomb and rose again from the grave. Then Peter quotes Psalm 16. He attributes this to Jesus. Jesus is the one who in perfection always set the Lord before him. In everything that he did. Why was it that Jesus would wake up early in the morning in prayer? Why was it that he would stay up all night to pray to God his Father? Because the Lord was always set before him. What we see here is, Psalm 16 is about David's savior, great David's greater son, Jesus, the son of God. You know, though Jesus on the cross cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he died. Jesus was not abandoned to Shaol nor did his body see corruption in the grave. No, he rose victorious, and he's now seated at the right hand of God. And so as we meditate on Psalm 16, we must do this in light of the cross. When, when you and I look at our own lives, we must admit that we fail so often to set the Lord before us, always, always. See, if if my relationship with God is dependent upon how well Mark Middlecoff sets the Lord before him each day, I'm toast. (laughs) I amaze myself at how quickly I can set earthly good things over and against God Himself, who is to be my only source of good. How about you? Are you like me, quick to run after other gods? Maybe financial security or relationships or career success? This psalm gives us hope. See, it points us to the one who fulfilled it perfectly. See, the cross tells all of us who trust in Christ that though we fail to set the Lord always before us, the Lord has never failed to set us before him. I'm not saying God worships us. No, but he has set his love and affection upon his people. He delights in his saints, the excellent ones that are in the land. And picture this. God has pity for those who run after other gods. He sees how our sorrows multiply when we run after them. So he sent his son to come after us. And it's true. Every form of refuge has its price. Jesus paid that price. He gave his life. He allowed himself to be cut off from the land of the living. And from the fullness of joy that he had with his father. So that we might never be. Jesus was forsaken so that all who trusted him will not be forsaken. And know this, my friends, put smiles on your face. Jesus is happy that he did this for you. He's not like going, oh, shucks, that was a real cruddy day, you know? Jesus is happy. The entire Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit are infinitely joyful. And all who find their refuge in Christ will one day enter into the fullness of that joy. But until that day, may we set the Lord always before us. And when we fail, may we be reminded of his mercy and grace towards us. And may we be be reminded that we have no other good apart from God. That God alone is our portion and our inheritance. And may our tails wag and our tongues sing. For in his presence alone there is fullness of joy. For at his right hand there are pleasures evermore. Let's pray. Father, that's good news. You are happy. You are full of delight and joy. You lack for nothing. But you're also an overflowing God. A God whose joy fills this earth uh, it captures our hearts, causes our whole beings to be joyful. May we press these truths deep into our souls. May you, Jesus, be our refuge in this life and the next. Uh, may you lead us there by your grace, we pray. Amen.